Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of The Five Things. I'm Amanda, and that was my best impression of our OG Five Things host, Kenny Gold. We miss you dearly. But today, we start a new chapter. We're still going to be bringing you the week's news and updates from the world of social media and beyond, but you'll be seeing some exciting changes to come in the next few weeks and months. So stay tuned. Watch this space. This week, I'm joined by the brilliant Five Things regular co-host, Juliana. Hello, and thank you. That's so great. That is so inspiring. Thank you for that. Uh, We're going to cover some new news this week, including Twitter piloting an e-commerce section, YouTube's new premium light offering, the White House is trying to get Gen Z vaxxed, a new social platform that's copying TikTok in a way we haven't seen yet, which says a lot, and a pretty creative advertising campaign from TikTok also. All right, Juliana, take us away on the first update. Okay, fantastic. For those of you that are a big fan of every platform becoming every other platform, well then gear up because Twitter is piloting an e-commerce section for brands. So the basics of it is that it's pretty early days, but Twitter's piloting this shop module. So it's a feature that would live, you know, dedicated at the top of a brand's profile um, and businesses can showcase their products. It allows for an individual to shop directly from Twitter you know, allowing this pathway from discovery to purchase very seamlessly through Twitter. Um, what's interesting, I recognize I kind of gave him flack about this feeling a little bit like a copycat, um, but apparently this has been in the works for Twitter for uh, about like five years. It's just something that they're now coming around to actually uh, bringing to life. And it's still, again, pretty early. I think they're trying to be a little bit more deliberate about it than a couple of the other Twitter um, features or new features that Twitter has pushed out. So right now, you know, it's only available to about 12 businesses. Uh, You can only access it if you're using Twitter on iOS and in a U.S. resident. So it's, you know, pretty much the most beta version you can possibly get. And, you know, I have to say it will be interesting to see how this is utilized. I think Twitter is saying that they're really trying to get a gauge on how they're very... um, conversation-based audience is going to start trying to migrate into it being a shopping space. Uh, I might bite my tongue about how I feel about this, but what it will be intriguing is I think, you know, best case scenario, if this really does like, if this does explode and becomes like an amazing thing, I think it'll say a lot about the ability for any space to be a discovery and shopping space. But I think it'll also be interesting to compare it to not, you know, say a Pinterest where that seems a lot more native, but probably more so Facebook where with their introduction of Facebook marketplace, something where, you know, you might not have thought of it as being a shoppable space turned out to be one very successfully. So, you know, really early days. Um, I hope Twitter does well. Amanda? I think you're right. If um, if Twitter can sell product direct from, you know, the Twitter app or Twitter.com, that means you can sell things from anywhere because I'm pretty sure that's the last platform that I would shop from. I know that, you know, we've said the same thing about Instagram at first, but given the behavior on each of the platforms, it kind of makes sense. Instagram being shoppable, YouTube being shoppable, Pinterest being shoppable, Twitter, question mark, if this falls a little bit closer to the Patreon-like offering, if it's something that feels a little bit more creator services. Um, But yeah, I think 
it starts to get a little confusing too, because if one, um, you know, if you're a brand and you have different, if you have 10 different places that someone can buy your product, it gives you an opportunity to have actually like not only a social strategy, but an e-commerce strategy and offer, you know, certain types of products to users on one platform, because that's the way they're engaging with your content on the other platform, like a Facebook, you know, maybe your demographics a little bit older and you can have an e-com strategy that helps target them a little bit closer. So to be seen, if that is too many, you know, spider legs away from the home base, that metaphor makes sense. But I don't know all of those words together, <laughs> but I think the sentiment is communicated. <laughs> we'll see. It, it can either be a little too many uh, different things in different places, or it can be done well and strategically to be seen. All right, moving on to our next thing. YouTube is piloting a program called Premium Light, which is an oxymoron in Europe that's essentially offering their premium subscription service, but it's a little bit more affordable. So usually this is in euros. So usually the monthly subscription for premium is around seven euro or is around 12 euros. This offering is seven euros. So it's not that much cheaper, but it's a little bit cheaper. The main benefit that users are going to get is ad free viewing. Um, but it doesn't offer, you know, background playback. So if you're using another app and you still want YouTube to play in the background, it doesn't add, uh, it doesn't include YouTube music benefits. It does not include offline downloads. So yeah, it's not incredibly appealing, I don't think, but the idea of it focusing on an ad free viewing experience, I think is another, you know, realization that marketers should be diversifying how they bring content to the world, especially when you think about it in the sense of YouTube, which is so creator heavy. You know, there's a lot of places that people will be viewing video content, whether it's it's pre-roll or, or TVC or otherwise. But this is really making us as marketers consider who we're trying to reach, where they're viewing and how brands can actually add value to that experience and wherever it lands. So what do you think? I mean, so I think that, you know, from the, the position of, you know, working in an agency, being able to advertise on YouTube is something that is kind of like, you know, it, you have to be doing it. It's sort of table stakes. And so it'll be very interesting if YouTube kind of is recognizing that there is a desire perhaps to not have the pre-roll, the mid-roll, the post-roll, and then the six ads in between that creators can sometimes put in their content. If people do overwhelmingly choose to opt out of that portion of the experience, how really you know, from the position of a B2B element, how YouTube will continue to kind of demonstrate that strength of its platform to advertisers. But then also from the B2C element, you know, I do find that YouTube is probably one of the best spaces for those kind of more long form ads that are almost more like short films. So, you know, you're looking at upwards of three minutes, five minute type of content um, that, I do think that a lot of advertisers, especially smaller advertisers, are getting really savvy with the way that they grab your attention and you know create this like longer narrative. But if that soon becomes less of a viable option, where will those types of content live? And how exactly will brands have to pivot if there aren't as many spaces for them to be able to paint these longer stories? Right. And I think it's something that is not new news to our industry. And I think to your point, it is, you know, a big step in the shift towards advertising as entertainment, whether that's with co-creators, whether that's with influencers or whether to your point, it's just making sure that the work that we're putting out is incredibly engaging and adds, you know, an entertainment aspect to something that people can appreciate. So 
it's it's a challenge, but I think it's one that, you know, has been coming for a while. And so. I think the real challenge at the end of the day is language because premium light is a confusing term. <laughs> these names that come out with these features, um, sometimes, you know, I wish they'd do better. Well, we'll leave that to the YouTube gang we'll it, to think yeah. about. That's our that's our two cents, YouTube. <laughs> All right. Next, let's talk about the White House, Juliana. You know, that's, yeah, that's the, the whole thing. We're just going to talk about the State of the Union. Um, I think it's, this is a really, this is a really fun time. This is a really interesting time. I think, um, you know, we'll be talking about the power of influencers because right now the White House is recruiting influencers, micro, macro, whatever have you, to fight vaccine misinformation. One thing that was really intriguing is to find out that you know, fewer than half of Americans age 18 to 39 are fully vaccinated, at least at the time of this you know, podcast dropping. And when you compare that to uh, the groups over 50, where over two thirds are vaccinated, clearly there's a lot of spread to cover. And so the White House is kind of going all in and trying to directly speak to younger audiences to give them the necessary information to be able to navigate, one, the reality of the shifting COVID situation, you know, the various variants, the different rules, uh, things like that. But then also trying to bring forth these faces that people recognize to provide detailed information of you know, what their options are as far as vaccinations are concerned. So right now, the White House has enlisted over, you know, 50 Twitch streamers, YouTubers, TikTokers, um, you know, wherever have you, these people with a large platform and creating these um, like small form campaigns, whether it's interviews directly with Dr. Fauci or having there being uh, uh, just these influencers getting vaccinated and posting, you know, themselves with the bandaid on their arm and encouraging their audiences to do so. And so it's a really interesting um and I think we've seen, you know, kind of long form, uh, successful type of, of campaign and you know, using people that people trust to uh, pass along a message. But what's been really intriguing, I think, is watching the way that influencers have had to kind of accept what their role is in the zeitgeist. You know, it's not just creating popular content, but also realizing that if you are a space that people turn to, you know, you can do the duty of helping people better themselves or, or, you know, get necessary information. Uh, there was one influencer, um, Niger, who is, you know, uh, influencer on Instagram and the point that she was making and trying to communicate, uh, you know, vaccine information was how do you walk the line between entertainment and information? You know, they come, your audience comes to you for a very particular type of content and you're now deviating, you know, for their own benefit, but how do you mold those two things? So, it's really intriguing to see, especially for, you know, a set of influencers that for the most part are what, like 19, 20, 21, uh, what they're doing with kind of this large weight on their shoulders. It's really interesting, too, to see this after, you know, I would say a decade of influencer marketing changing so much from being this very pristine, beautiful, curated experience for how influencers kind of came from to this much more transparent, realistic to your point, like understanding that you do impact culture. There are things that you don't necessarily, you know, know to an expert sense. You do have this kind of commitment to your audiences. So I think it will work I, I, to, to like just blanket in that. I mean, we there was the Olivia Rodrigo visit to the White House that was then all over the Internet. It was being, you know, talked about as being memed. It was everywhere. And I think even that alone as part of this campaign 
is getting the idea of getting vaccinated into people's brains that, you know, might either think that they don't need it or what, you know, whatever their personal reasons are for not getting it. It, it is taking a moment to say, hey, like, I felt the same way you did or have a really honest conversation about what these influencers, you know, are bringing to the table and then connecting that with information. And I, I think we'll see actually, I, I'd like to think we'll see actually some really good response from it. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, the the intriguing thing about Gen Z, because, you know, it does cover a large swath of minors and a very small amount of people that are allowed to make these type of decisions by themselves, that 18 to 24 co- cohort. Um, you know, there's only 10 states where a minor can get vaccinated without their parents' consent. So thinking about, you know, this this group, of, effectively, we're looking at college students and trying to, to shift the tide for them. So I think especially as this campaign continues and goes longer, will be intriguing to see how a message right now that's more a little bit just like blanket, you know, information and hoping that awareness moves into action, how it will narrow down once they recognize perhaps where are the hangups and the hurdles that are preventing this audience from, um, from getting vaccinated. So, you know, uh, really watch this space uh, <laughs> and we'll see what comes next. Yeah, that'll be interesting. It's You can also see a very direct tie to the demographics that get um, vaccinated. So, Curious how that unfolds. Our next thing. This is really interesting. Um, Okay, so there's a new app, and it looks a lot like TikTok, which is no surprise. Uh, I think every feature of TikTok has been stripped and recreated across every platform, like it's a stolen car. But this new app, I think it's pronounced Polmix or Polymix, is claiming to bring together the world's brightest youth and global leaders from both sides of any polarizing question. So their slogan is, convince me if you can. It's right now it's an invite only. Um, It looks a lot like TikTok, full bleed, short form edited videos up to 30 seconds, but the content is specifically aimed to start a discourse between younger students. So it's a little bit like a debate club. Um, It's run by founders who are carefully selected university leaders And they pre-select topics ranging a lot of different, you know, thoughts from political. There's questions around, you know, should Democrats pack the House to, you know, science, like should human gene editing be legal, et cetera. There's a lot of different um, pre-selected topics that you can go in, you know, hear people's sides. There is a rating system that impacts the algorithm. So this is this is kind of funny. I'm going to say it out loud. The rating vote system, you can either vote hell yes, or you can vote hell no. You can vote convinced by you, or you can vote respect, but disagree. So understanding again, there's nuance to all this conversation. I It's, I, it's very unique in the way that they are trying to create a conversation. They're claiming it's almost like Reddit meets Twitter. So the intention is to get a high quality discourse Make sure that users can voice and hear both sides of the argument before agreeing and disagreeing. And then I think that will impact the content that you're served. So it's it's different. It's interesting. And I think one thing that I find really interesting to see how it actually impacts users' um, behavior is the idea of critical thinking and being shown both sides immediately to a conversation being able to respond to that and then understanding any more nuance that you might not either already have thought of or considered. What do you think? So I'll admit I was a debate kid. So I am too close to the topic to report uh, objectively. 
the thing that's very funny to me, just kind of doing a quick stare at Polmex is like you said, part of the benefit of them copying TikTok is it's short form content. And I would argue that the worst place to be capped at a time limit to make your point is when you're arguing topics like who has rights and who doesn't and how should we proceed in politics. So it's just very intriguing to me. And I think it really is representative of that sort of, you know, the 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 Nick Fuentes, the um, you know, Steven Crowder debate me type of style of political commentary that we've seen, you know, popularize and create, you know, platforms for guys who were in my law class. Um, and while I do think it's beneficial to give, especially younger uh, audiences, the power to speak passionately about what they believe in and to be able to learn how to structure arguments and be able to create very clear contentions about the things they, they, um, they feel and believe to be true, which is really the core of debate and a skill that everyone needs. It's, you know, public speaking meets critical thinking, like you're saying. It is very intriguing to present it in a way that people are allowed to take probably the most digestible version of what may be a complex topic and then decide whether or not what you're saying is popular, which is what it sounds like based on the rating scale that you're providing versus perhaps true um, versus whether or not it's, you know, the most factual. And so it's very interesting to, to present something like that. And I, and I think as well, given the, the type of topics that can come forward, I think one thing recently that a variety of TikTok creators were kind of talking about is the rise of um, alt-right white supremacist arguments uh, fomenting on the platform is those type of arguments that are allowed to be pushed forward with a little less factual evidence, a little more passion, but when spoken to in a very professional oratory manner can seem convincing. If this will kind of further this idea of the substance of an argument isn't nearly as important as the way that the argument's presented because it's a lot harder to get into detail and still sound convincing. So, I mean, I, I have some feelings. I agree. And I think they also, I didn't go into this, but they, the founders have a, what they feel to be a pretty strict policy, you know, toward hate speech and bigotry. Certain topics just are off limits to your point. Where does truth versus opinion versus fact really overlap and what is, you know, allowed on this platform? I think if anything, this might be, as, as all the platforms are starting to understand how they manage hate speech, um, misinformation, et cetera, on their platforms, if nothing else, if they, if this platform can find, you know, a relatively clear way to outline what's acceptable or unacceptable, and then, you know, fight those kinds of conversations from being on the platform in a, you know, efficient way, that could be the value that it adds to the world of, of social. Um, I'm not sure if this is particularly needed, but I'm curious to see more about, around what their policy is and how they plan to create this, this place where people can have a dialogue. Yeah. I, I think that's very interesting. The, to have on the surface, this statement of hate speech is not allowed. And then on the back end saying the idea is to welcome people from every side of every controversial question. We have people from the Trump administration, from QAnon making videos. And it's interesting because 
there's hate speech and then there are ideologies that are founded on hate and lack of truth. And it's essentially what I would say, inviting a dog whistle parade. But um, again, I might be jumping the gun. I think it will be important to explore Polmex. And I do think that something that is as potentially fiery as this has definitely piqued my curiosity and I'll probably be downloading it by the time this episode airs. So, you know, congratulations, marketing works. There's I'm definitely something interesting. interesting. Yes, there's, there's something, definitely something there. Something's good. We're good. This isn't our last time talking about it. Not Goodness, I all. hope not. I am excited. This app was actually made for you. Um, so with that, what's, what's our last thing, Julian? Yeah, I mean, it's not nearly as spicy as dogwhistle.net, but I suppose this will do. So TikTok is celebrating and recreating some iconic ad campaigns with its remake uh, sort of takeover. So the way that this works is that TikTok is partnering with three legendary brands, uh, the creative agency BBDO and The Hive, and they're essentially inviting content creators to visit some of the most celebrated campaigns in advertising history, and also allowing these creators to revitalize them and essentially do their own spin on them. So some of the uh, ads that are being uh, remade are the Snickers uh, first You're Not You When You're Hungry campaign with Betty White. There's also the Old Spice, you're the man your man can smell like. And then lastly, the Skittles touch, uh, where we found out that Skittles can be contagious. They're so delicious. So it's really intriguing. You know, you're seeing these, these creators that are allowed to use their, you know, amazing editing skills, their, their short form content skills to bring these to life. Uh, but of course, you know, from the perspective of an advertiser and marketer, like you must be having the greatest three weeks knowing that you, instead of having to create a new campaign, you can just say, Hey, remember that great campaign we made? <laughs> Let's have someone else do it and then repopularize ourselves. I think it's very smart. This idea of the collapsed window of nostalgia and especially recognizing advertisements and marketing as a part of nostalgia. I would say that one of the uh, more recent examples uh, of this is the um, Adult Swim uh, content series or you know challenge that people were doing, you know, recreating literally the ad break for Adult Swim and just showing that a generation that's been raised with digital media has it committed to memory effectively. It's a very referential audience. And being able to tap into pieces of content that you've used before in any fashion, you know, there, there's an audience that's willing to, to engage with it. You know, it'd be different if BBDO was just, you know, re-airing these ads versus saying, hey, we want you to participate, knowing this is a part effectively of your, your generation's culture. I think it's very smart. Shout out to the creative team. Take a week off. You know, let someone else take it, take it on for a little bit. It's also it, kudos to TikTok because they easily could have gone to the brands or the agencies and said, hey, remake these into short form, you know, TikTok style content. But instead, they chose to celebrate the creators on the platform, showcasing how things can be translated in so many different ways, especially with, again, the younger generation. I am almost certain that what these creators have come up with is nowhere no, nothing like what the agencies or the brands would have come up with in a good way. Everybody has different audiences and content styles and, you know, social presences that 
the amount of iterations and versions of the same, you know, a, a great campaign that has so many different ways of bringing it to life. It's just TikTok showcasing how, you know, when you partner with a creator to do things like this, your reach is, you know, extends so far beyond what, you know, one, one team could even manage. So great way to, sh- to highlight the creators on the platform to your point, great way to give some people some time off, showcase some different content styles. We love it. All and right. Like- Oh, please continue. I was just going to say, you know, the basic, I would say the basic lesson from this is if you want other people to create content, giving them a foundation to build on, this is basically like a dance challenge. You know, you understand the overarching format, run with it. Very smart versus, you know, kind of just requesting that people create something completely bespoke. So if you're out there and wondering how in the world am I going to get my brand in front of people, give them something to build against. Brilliant. Great foundation comes great content. All right. That was our batch of things for this week. Um, Just a reminder, be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your platform of choice. And if you have any questions or if you're just enjoying the weekly things, shoot us an email at podcast at gray.com. After today, I'm going to retire this phrase, but I'm going to do it one more time for Kenny Gold. Stay safe, stay smart, stay social. That's a really hard phrase to say. Oh my God, how did he do it? How did he do it every week? I got, I was like, that can't be what we say now. Like I got (laughs) to, I can't just keep that. That just got to stay safer, stay smarter, be sociable. It doesn't sound right coming from me. Um, All right. That was all right. I think that was pretty good. The Five Things are produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Guy Rosemarin, with support from post-producer Ned Martin. Additional support by John Jenkinson and Christina Hyde. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.